Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. I am so excited today to have my great friend and guest, Danny Holtzman, who single-handedly enabled us at the Air Force and Space Force and many of the key uh, DoD programs uh, to embrace DevSecOps and be accredited to be able to deploy capabilities to productions multiple times a day. It's going to be a very exciting uh, session today. So if you have questions from Danny, we already got so many, I don't even know uh, how many we're going to be able to cover today. But if you want to get a chance to ask a question to Danny, you need to uh, comment uh, in the comment section below to make sure you start asking your questions, starting with a queue. Uh, so we know it's a question. Also, if you want to share you here with us today, uh, please do that by simply uh, putting your name and uh, location or, or company so we know uh, that you're here with us. Uh, quickly, before we get started with that, I wanted to remind everybody to subscribe uh, to uh, the show in the nick of time.tv, put your emails so you can get notifications about the next episodes uh, and uh, all the news and the uh, the information we send you uh, weekly uh, so you know what's going on in this uh, crazy uh, universe. Also, uh, I have uh, pretty exciting news for people that don't know. Uh, we're going to be launching in the next uh, uh, few weeks now a new learning platform uh, called uh, Learn with Nick, uh, where we're going to have self-learning courses. Uh, the initial uh, first course will be on digital transformation, DevSecOps, designed uh, for uh pretty much everybody as a starter course where uh, we have about 40 segments uh, updated yearly. Uh, that's something that was very important to us uh, with uh, videos. Uh, so you can see exactly uh, what's going on when it comes to technology, culture, acquisition, and all the key pieces to enable your organizations to move uh, to uh, DevSecOps and embrace modern uh, digital transformation agility so um, stay tuned for that uh, it's going to be a subscription model so you can get access to a private uh, subscriber only uh, committee of practice uh, uh, get access to live q a sessions but also uh, new videos every week and uh, a full uh, curriculum with the certificate working on this now where you're going to be able to know about uh, kubernetes DevSecOps, service mesh but also cultural things like how to build momentum with your leadership to uh, get uh, the right top cover to enable your, your teams to move to DevSecOps, uh, how to build the platform teams, how to make sure your software teams uh, don't build software in a vacuum. So a lot of pretty exciting subjects, and you'll be able to see that pretty soon. We're recording about 40 video segments uh, this week again to add more content uh, based on feedback we got from about 75 CIOs of Fortune 500. Uh, so it's not just designed for the DOD, of course, or the, the government. Uh, this is something that can apply to everybody on the commercial side, including non-technical people. We have uh, uh, lots of seats being booked for uh, marketing people, salespeople, and so on. So it's pretty exciting. It's going to be a great course to enable people to catch up and know more than just buzzwords, right? So they can actually contribute and be part of that evolution and investing in, uh, in yourself so you can uh, keep up uh, with the crazy pace of IT. Uh, so that's pretty exciting to see. And uh, we're going to be able to launch this uh, uh, probably mid-August. So uh, if you want to subscribe to the uh, to the show, uh, you're going to be able to get notifications when we're going to do the, the soft launch of the platform 
Uh, and like I said, there's going to be uh, one-on-one sessions and Q&A sessions and also uh, self-learning created videos all the way to hands-on exercises as well. So uh, pretty exciting stuff. Now, I wanted to give you a quick rundown if you don't know uh, who Danny Holtzman is. And like I told you, he's been the main uh, enabler to uh, all these critical programs moving to DevSecOps so they can do it in a real production environment, which, as you know, you cannot uh, do any kind of DevSecOps if you're deploying in a lab in a vacuum. So uh, without accreditation and without the ability to continuously deliver uh, capabilities to production, you obviously do not have the ability to implement DevSecOps. And Danny has, has been the authorizing official uh, appointed uh, by uh, Lauren Nussemerger as the Air Force and Space Force CIO. Uh, he is an HQE like I was, and he has been uh, really helping when it comes to everything around cyber, uh, program protection planning, and of course, supply chain uh, management, all the way to uh, system assurance and resiliency. Uh, and uh, quite honestly, his um, uh, uh, authority and boundaries are pretty incredible. Um, covering anywhere from the command and control systems, uh, collateral and SAP, all the way to uh, rapid cyber acquisition, uh, enterprise IT as a service, uh, cloud with cloud one and platform one, F-35, um, Alice and GBSD, the nuclear uh, most important uh, program of the 21st century. So as you can imagine, uh, it's a pretty uh, a massive breadth of, of um, DOD programs and engagements, and he's been the main authorizing official and the only one approved in the Air Force and Space Force to uh, issue real uh, continuous authority to operate so teams can actually implement DevSecOps in real life and not in labs. So uh, we're very excited to have Danny on today. I'm going to bring him up on the screen here. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I was so excited. Sorry, we had to reschedule last week. I had a little of a kidney stone, so that's not fun. Uh, and so we had to move you to this week. Uh, and people were so excited already uh, last week, and they're still here today to see you because I know uh, so many people want to know and understand kind of your your mindset and what he your journey, you know, and what it took for you to to go from uh, uh, you know uh, uh, struggling when it comes to uh, the ability to innovate to enabling all these teams, right, to uh, uh, to to deliver at the pace of relevance. And I, like I, I said before, um, without you, I don't know if we would have been able to achieve pretty much anything. <laughs> so I would argue all of my su successes are enabled through you. And, and so I wanted to thank you for that. But I also wanted to give you uh, first a chance to uh, tell a little bit about your journey so, so people know a little bit about, about you first. Well, thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Um, well, so my background, I think, contributes a lot to maybe my ability to enable as I've done it, right? I started off, I'm a computer scientist. I started off by working in nuclear software development, right? So really high assurance environments and then worked in systems engineering. But I think it was my experience, the opportunity I had to be the chief engineer on one of our weapon systems, uh, an airplane at the time, that really got me to where I am today because I would ask my authorizing official often, what's the risk of me doing something? 
And the answer I always got back seemed to be, no, you can't. Not what the risk was, not what the yes if or the yes but was. It was always, no, I'm not going to let you do this. And I, I didn't find that really around the the spirit of what the RMF is is true to be about. And I spent some time in a previous job working with NIST and uh, Dr. Ross, helping develop some of that. So I thought I understood what that intent was. So my journey, I think, that got me to where I am and hopefully is part of why I, I, I look to enable was my being in the shoes of most of the other folks on this call of, of looking at how do we move forward with understanding what the risk is so that the consumer can make a more wise choice, if that makes sense. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, that's pretty much what I was hearing a lot as well, right? Uh, no, um, instead of yes, but, right? And and so you, you obviously kept hearing no. Uh, most of the time, you know, had no access to any kind of risk insight. So so what did that end up pushing you to do? You, you, you effectively had to be to become part of the solution, right? Yeah, it, it really, yeah. It, 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 I was having a conversation with the CIO at the time uh, and, and he said, why don't you come be a be an AO and help me fix it? And, and I said, okay, you know, I, I can do that if we're willing to really get to breaking down the problem and understanding why. I think everybody was well-meaning. Everybody meant something that they, they took their job seriously, but we had implemented such a risk-averse process. It didn't allow us to move forward. And I think, as you and I have talked about before, Nick, in this world we live in, in the cloud environment, in, in the technology we have today, the risk adverse slowness of where we are is the worst thing we can do. Yeah, and you know, obviously people are very constrained by the bureaucracy and, and kind of the rules. There's of course the hard written rules, but there's also, as you know, uh, interpretation of rules and I, I would argue that's probably the worst of all, all of them right because people end up uh, assuming or guessing or interpreting things in a different way and, and so you have a, a lack of understanding right of the uh, of, of the actual technology right because that's the other piece that people um, struggle with most of the AOs are SESs right and and many of them don't have a, a technical background so what made you also a little bit unique was your your actual uh, deeper, you know, technical background. Yeah, I think, you know, if you want to assess something, you need to understand it. I, I do think that the the structure we have, as I've said before, is is a vestige of the past. I do this job almost 90% to 100% of my time. I, the other AOs don't have that luxury. It's not that some of them don't want to. It's that they have big job scopes. I've been able to, as an HQE, focus on this. And, and I think being a systems engineer or computer scientist makes me want to understand the underlying technologies. And I often talk about laptops, right? If, if folks say, I'm going to virtualize, I'm going to put something on top and protect your laptop, and they don't understand what a post is or below the post, how can they really present me an understanding of how that thing works and what the risk is? That takes an energy and a commitment and a different way of doing things. Yeah, and it's interesting because I've seen also the other side of the coin, right, with many AOs being uh, PEOs sometimes, and uh, and they obviously care about their programs, and that's all great. 
but they also don't understand the risk well enough. And I would I would argue they also approve things I would not have approved. So so it goes both ways, right? The lack of understanding of risk and the technology and making decisions based on uh, lack of awareness or, or, or insight is effectively effectively a lose lose on both sides. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think one of the one of the cultural changes we made, not just in the DevSecOps area, but I consider myself as a authorizing official, not really the risk taker. I consider myself as the advisor to those that are taking risk. And when I talk to a PEO, I need to communicate in words the PEO understands so they can understand that risk better. When I talk to an operational user, I need to translate that into operational speak, not talk about RMF packages and STIGs and scans and things, but turn it into how they get sortie generations, how do they get reconstitution, how do they get on mission support. So I think part of it is that I used to joke, Nick, that HQEs were highly quotable evangelists. Really, that's what the title should be. How do we communicate what the risk is in a way that the consumer, whoever we're talking to, can understand it? I think that's a part we've lost in our desire to proceduralize the RMF in a way that that allows everybody to go through the checklist. Yeah, and someone else just mentioned the checklist, the magical checklist uh, of dear friend Brian Finster. Um, so when you look at you know everything we've we've achieved with with DevSecOps, what made you realize? Wait a minute, you know this is actually very important for the DoD to embrace that kind of mindset. What was the kind of the uh, the moment you know that uh, made you? Uh, take a second and be like, well, we really need to get this right. So I, I'm i going to lead up to answering your question. I, I think over this journey where I'd come from was an understanding that risk is very temporal and it's very contextual. And an understanding of if I do X amount of things, I'm good, wasn't really where we needed to be, right? I used to joke every system that's been hacked has an ATO. So we can keep doing that right even though it's not exactly true but we we really weren't addressing that temporal aspect of risk what what i saw as well uh, leading up to the devsecops discussion with you actually was we we had such long cycles to deliver capability that by the time we did them and followed our process they were outdated as soon as they got there that to me increased risk that to me allowed larger attack services, larger opportunities, and the automation, uh, the ability to automate and test as we go, even back to the build a little, test a little philosophy is really where we wanted to be. And, and I, to be honest, it was one of the conversations we had when you first came on board in your office that really got me thinking about what we were both talking about was very similar, right? How do I move faster than my adversaries? How do I get inside their OODA loop? How do I do a little bit and learn and grow and protect and, and, and become more secure every day, as opposed to the big bang theory where we, we have to do everything at once, test everything, make sure there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, right? And not, we still have a great Air Force, the best in the world, yet we don't produce a lot of systems that we consider operationally suitable and acceptable. I think there's a thinking that we have to change. That's really where I was coming from. And then when we started talking about DevSecOps, that really sparked an interest in me as a way to get to that position. 
Yeah, we were always very aligned when he when he came to um, you know tangible outcomes because you very much care about the mission like me and and we were seeing a lot of people struggling right when it comes to getting things done and, and being empowered to do it and so removing the impediments for them to get there was essential uh, and the small incremental delivery of value you know in production with actual tangible feedback and not just uh, you know trying to throw throw things in the lab and, and see what sticks. In vacuums, you know that's obviously the the better answer. Uh, it's also the baked in security aspect. I remember, you know, our first meetings where we we were talking about uh, continuous monitoring and and kind of the better visibility when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, many of the ATOs I reviewed, I remember in the Air Force, I would say about ninety percent had the basics of ingress egress uh, port and protocol information in the ATO wrong let alone the more uh, advanced information was already obsolete uh, only because of course the ATOs were stuck in time, you know, three, five years old. Um, so that, that doesn't give you a, a real time understanding of rest. So you're making decisions based on obsolete and uh, completely wrong data. Um, so obviously that, that big teen uh, aspect was, was the, the trigger. And then, I guess, how did you do your engagement started with a, specifically the continuous ATO uh, journey? I know you started uh, obviously working with Lauren on Kessel Run, but, but remind us a little bit of the very beginning of the, the CATO. So, so for me, it was, it was kind of the philosophy I had been implying anyways. I, I always thought to myself as an AO, my authorizations had to be continued. I had to have continuous insight. So I have a very... Uh, high ops tempo as an AO, I meet with all my programs on some regular basis, whether it's monthly, quarterly, or yearly, or, or every other month or every other week for programs that are in trouble. I'm engaging. If I don't understand what they're doing and how they're doing it, I can't really assess the risk. So when, when we started talking about the needing to move faster, to increase our tempo, to get more support to our warfighters, right, I understood two things. One, they're out there doing it anyways. We, we can say don't do it, and we can build these big processes <laughs> back here. But I go visit USAPI, I go visit other places, and they're just not, they're going around us. So we're not having the, we're having the opposite effect of what we need to do. So for right. me, continuous authorization to operate has always been part of what the RMF tenants were. It is part of the current guidance. There's not really a difference in my view, right? I, I always look at the policy as a way to, to read it to yes, not no. Um, right. And between the 7,000 plus pages, you can always find a, a line <laughs> in there that lets you say yes. Um, yeah. And others can find lines that make you say no. So, so I viewed the continuous ATO really as something we were already empowered to do. And we did have the undersecretary send out two memos, right? We call them fast track at the time that gave us that top cover in the Air Force right. to go and do this. So I was super excited when you and Lauren and I started talking about this to say, okay, now maybe I don't have to fight so much when I do this. Maybe I can, <laughs> I can move programs faster forward because it was, it was hard to change the culture. And I think it's cultural, Nick. I think there's a lot of cultural changes sure. that we're going through. And the first, so the first, so the renaming of the fast track during the Bill Marion days to the to the first uh, CATO with Lauren and and still Bill Mayan, but but I guess Kessa Run was kind of the first uh, CATO signed piece of paper. You were involved after that, right? You you kind of took over 
uh, from Lauren, the the Kesaran uh, CATO, uh, when she became, I don't know if it's when she became CIO, I forgot, but but you were certainly involved with Kesaran from the from the beginning. Yeah, I was, and we, we worked a lot together back then, right? In her her role and my role, but I think the the what we learned, and and again, when we started the journey, it was learning, and I remember mm-hmm. Dr. Roper wanting to you know learn on multiple fronts, so we started a lot of independent efforts, really. So that we could right. learn in different ways, which was smart. And then how would we harness that that best of practice, so to speak, in, into a, a more focused lens later on? So for me, it was also challenging and fun to, to unleash the creativity of our airmen, of our guardians, of our you know workers that are out there who grew up in a different generation than us. They think <laughs> differently. They... They understand data differently. We don't live in a deterministic, everything's connected in a specific way world anymore. And I think some of us maybe in in my generation haven't pushed beyond that unchecked bias in terms of where we're going. So I I thought it was great, the learning, the expectations, the how do we develop it so we know what the risk is as we're producing it. Not not just that it has to check boxes, right? but I was always saying, can I get a nutritional facts label on my software? The, the equivalent right. of it. You know, right. how do I know what that is automatically? And then if I trust the infrastructure, I can have what I call automatic reciprocity, which isn't free everywhere. But I understand as a consumer what the risk of inheriting that thing is right now, yeah. whether peacetime, wartime or whatever. So it was really interesting yeah. journey. And it gives us more scale and, you know, everybody assessing software, the same piece of code and the same open source bits and the same commercial uh, tools in vacuums is just not scalable. Right. And then you end up having a lot of disparity. And like you said, you know, people need to get their job done. So they're going to end up either way uh, starting to deploy things in the shadow IT kind of way, which adds tremendous risk instead of doing it as a a right enterprise uh, fashion. Um, and, and so you're just slowing things down, but but already you're just creating shadow IT, right? So so I would argue also the, the mission risk of not being capable of doing your job is probably even worse. I always tell people I'm, I'm always very concerned about the DoD getting hacked, but I would be even more concerned if we're so far behind and, and effectively, uh, uh, you know, obsolete that no one is trying to hack us anymore, right? I don't know which one is worse, right? <laughs> so that's uh, that's a good train of thought, right? Yeah, and I think the other part of it, Nick, really is I saw us spending energy in the places that weren't really value added for the future. We had large poems of unfunded things on the wrong, what I consider to be the wrong focus areas. So we we were spending our energy in the wrong direction. I think continuous ATO allowed us to evaluate things at the now. Right. And right. change that evaluation when we fixed, have a right? new now. Right. Because yep. that's the thing, right? You don't want to spend five years to realize, wait, that was a waste of time. Right. You want to yeah, be absolutely. able to sit right in six months and see what, you know, what people like or don't like. Right. That's exactly. a better way of spending money. Yeah. That's uh that should be a mandate for all R&D and all continuous, uh, you know, delivery of, of, of software. Right. You want to you want to be able to see what sticks. Right. So. Absolutely. All right. So we talked about the CATO and the journey a little bit. Uh, but but when you see what you've learned, right, and and all the different engagements, and you know, when you look at your your bio, I think that's when people realize kind of the volume of of programs and the importance of your your binary and, and what you oversee and 
and the amount of work that must be, right? But when you when you look at uh, the first engagements, right, and uh, what you do now, what did you learn that kind of made you change the process? What are you paying more attention to? If you see a new team coming to you tomorrow and say, hey, I want a continuous ATO, I want one of those fancy continuous ATO, which is, which is a, the highest level of trust, right, you can give to, to a team, what do you expect to see? So, so I'll tell you that what I noticed originally, Nick, was we had an ecosystem that needed to evolve, right? We, we, we had a structure where you had AOs, AODRs, and what was called by everybody else security control assessors. And, and the ecosystem didn't support what I thought we needed to do, which I, I think the evidence now supports. We weren't really enabling those people in that ecosystem, the SEAs, the AODRs, to think risk management. We, we were doing compliance masquerading as risk management, I used to say, because they were following a checklist. They were overworked. They weren't given enough time in the day. You know, We weren't showing them the training and the love to do it. And then we confused automation in a certain tool with a better way to get the bad faster, as I used to like to say, right? And and as a survivor of OPM, I can tell you putting all of our stuff in one database maybe isn't the necessarily the best or smartest choice. But I think to, to get to the engagements, for me, it was investing in that group of people. I didn't get a lot of resources to do this job. So... I created what I call fee-for-service, which my programs will tell you they call extortion because I charge them for doing my, my job. But in doing that, I became more of a provider for a customer service relationship. So what I learned in that engagement is I have to understand what they're building, why they're building it, and how it's going to work in order to make those trades that are necessary to identify to a user what the risk is. So building out that ecosystem where I have what I now call cyber risk assessors, not security control assessors, right? Because it's about cyber risk, not just controls. Controls are important. They're, they're an aspect of, of any mitigation that you're going to uh, attempt. Um, but they're not the, the be-all, end-all, right? You can do all 1,000 controls and still not have a safe, secure system. So I think changing the culture and that ecosystem, changing the environment where people got to see us and the AO is not the enemy, right? We're part of the support and solution in helping a program understand what that risk is, however they trade it off against all the other risks they have. So I think the, the thing I learned the most was that personal engagement, right? I don't, I'm, as an HQE like you, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm unique. I don't have a secretary. I don't have an exec. I don't have a staff. I don't, it's just me, right? People email me. I answer back. So, so there isn't this, everything's got to be perfect to take 10 months to triple summarize and check to get to the AO. <laughs> I engage regularly. But I think that's part of the DevSecOps mindset, right? The cultural thing, that's as important as, as any process of risk assessment is that working it in a way that gets that agility. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think you, you also mentioned uh, before the... Uh... Uh, the need also of, of making sure on the other side of the country safety on the program side that you have a cyber person that's capable and that if they rotate and move on, right, you've seen this variety of, of execution and, and, and then people just assume, oh, it's magical, it's a country safety, it's just going to happen. But then you realize, wait a minute, uh, you know, we don't have the right person now to pay attention 
to all these details and now we're struggling. Exactly. I, I think the other part of what you've asked me really is I've learned two, two big things. The first thing I talked about, which is changing the ecosystem to get there. But the second thing is what happens when we're there, right? We haven't yet got to a maturity level of, of sustaining that initial development of DevSecOps. We've invested in it. We've built the infrastructure. We've built all of the things. But then we have a, I'll call it a regression. I'll call it a slowdown once we get there. Mm -hmm. But we don't really fund that. It's an expert system. You, you have to you know, build an expert system to get the agility you want. And what I'm seeing is we're not really focused on that, which, which starts to digress how we can continue to evolve at the same pace, if that made sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I guess um, you know, when, you, when you think of, of the engagements you're having with so many different teams, right, from, from Kessel Run to a GBSD to an F35, you see the number of people engaged, you see the platform one work, you see the cloud one work, you see obviously the change of leadership, you know, with obviously Dr. Roper being gone, uh, myself and Preston being gone. How brittle do you think these engagements are? Are we, are we, are we past the, the sustainment mode of this and it's going to keep going? Or are you concerned about the survival of some of these things? My honest view is I think we're at a very pivotal point, Nick. I think we are at risk of the bureaucracy pulling us back to where we were in the past because that's its natural tendency, right? I mean, the bureaucracy doesn't mm -hmm. have a name. It's faceless. It's, it's there for what it is. But, but I, I, I view it with the leadership changes you've uh, expressed and, and we've seen and the change in leadership because those folks didn't grow up in our environment. They didn't grow up in this vision. I do see us at a point where we risk um, f moving backwards. I, I, yeah. I know we're talking about it, which is exciting, right? There's more leadership discussion about software and DevSecOps and where we need to do with risk management than I've ever seen before in the Air Force and DOD. So that excites me. But I think it's, it's now more than ever we need to have the right passionate leading minds pushing for it, or I do, I, I'm fearful we will start sliding backwards. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because obviously there was a there was a push from the bottom up and the top down with Dr. Roper, right? And then that kind of went away and, and then slowly but surely, right, getting harder and harder to get anything done. And and so came the you know more frustration, of course. Um, and, and so you know when, when you look at, for example, uh, some of the talent you see on the on the government side in some of the programs. How dependent do you feel like when you look at F35 or GBSD or, or Platform One? Uh, how dependent are we on, on a few key people? I, I believe we're too dependent. What, what I don't see us doing really well is we don't have succession planning. We, we don't have a training pipeline. So when somebody comes in, like as an AO, if I leave, I don't have a pipeline that says, let me bring somebody on, let me train them, let me educate them, right? It's always a They don't even overlap, thing. right? Most of the time, you know, you end up leaving before they show up. That's yeah, already a pretty bad start. <laughs> right. And that's a challenge in this space, I think, because it's contextual. So I I see that as a as part of the cultural change we need to foster. That's what I've built in my ecosystem, where I bring people into CRAs, make them lead CRAs, uh, let them aspire to AODRs, 
so they can become AOs in some day if they want to. But I don't see that in the larger context of how we're operating with inside the, the, the DOD anyways. And I think that that concerns me, Nick, from the point you just made. I, I don't, I see us not having that talent pipeline. We have people that are smart, they come in, we burn them out, they, they tend to go do other things, right? But the folks that come back in don't get that education in that environment. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because I've left uh, back in October 2021. We're almost, uh, you know, in three months, we're going to be a year uh, in, and, and yet there's no new CSO. So that's a good, you know, how do you want to train someone that's not even there, you know, eight months later, <laughs> uh, you know, nine months later, it's pretty, pretty tough. That's um, that's a big concern I have. And, you know, with Preston leaving, of course, and, and others, uh, you know, it keeps piling up, right? I think seven out of the eight, founders of, of platform one or other other gone or, or left on the government side so that's pretty concerning and and like you said when there's a new person it's not like you'll you'll just you know continuing the engagement and and just pick up the, the baton and keep running with it right you end up often taking a massive step back right for them to learn and get back to it and and so you lose another six months right for them to catch up and then you know keep keep uh, expanding so that's uh it's a pretty concerning thing. So, when you when you look at the the programs and the engagements you have uh, with some of these uh, critical weapon systems, what do you expect to see when it comes specifically to to continuous monitoring? So, I think there's three categories of things I look for, Nick. Number one is um, I look for the lack of uh, marketing, right? I, I really want to be clinical about do we understand what our risk posture is, even if we're not doing anything about it. And and I, I usually judge that by when folks come at me for the first thing to say the world's going to end, the user's going to you know die if you don't do this. That's great. Uh, I get that. That's why we're all here. But do we understand what the risk is clinically so we can deal with it? The second thing I look for is really change, right? When we build something, we then have to configure control it and we need to look at the change management that's a big aspect of it and i mean that from the infrastructures the hardware change has a software change has a tooling change did it introduce any 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 threats i have to worry about did it introduce something i missed did the change to the people did did all the people transition you got new people who don't know how to operate the machinery that's a change in risk posture and then what is my threat doing right our adversary has a vote they're doing things that i have to react to on a regular basis that i didn't have to react to you know, yesterday. So I look for change. And then the third thing I look for from a continuous monitoring perspective is how do I have the automation to detect a tell that that change is something I need to look at? Because right now today, I'm too static. Even today, it's too it's too paper driven. It's too PowerPoint driven. It's, it's too much. A, here's the storyline that takes seven months to get to me as an AO because they want to make sure it's pre-briefed to everybody and their brother before I see it, right? I, right? I don't yet have enough, in my opinion, of that real-time, real right? Time let me just, let, yeah, real-time dashboard. Even if it's a daily stand-up and you're talking to it, I, because our dashboards tend to become over overly burdensome scorecards. So those are what I, things I look for, Nick. Yeah, so so obviously the real-time dashboards and the ability to, to have the right metrics and, you know, we had a great episode with uh, Brian Finster 
who is here on the on the chat uh, about the right metrics to pay attention to in terms of uh, uh, mean time to recovery, mean time to production, and, and so on, um, and and how to make sure teams all have the uh, uh, the the culture mindset right to innovate and have the the blameless postpartums and and all these different things that are necessary for people to learn, right? I always say, you know, fail fast, learn fast, but don't fail twice for the same reason. And what are, what kind of lessons learned are you uh, um, gathering after something happened? Uh, but the, 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 the real-time dashboard is so essential on the continuous ATO uh, standpoint because that's how you end up really getting a, a real understanding of risk versus uh, ESA, right? Because... I remember a lot of uh, briefs to the leadership uh, between what I had seen, you know, with the actual people doing the work, often, you know, lower rank officers or enlisted, right? And the time he got to the two-star, the three-star, the appointee, the story went from like, we're on fire to these butterflies and rainbows. And it's the same alleged story, but it's obviously not the same reflection of risk i'm sure you've yeah, seen that too i have i i say you know there used to be a story called the plan right where a dog goes you know on your front yard and and by the time it gets to the senior leadership it's it's fertilizer that promotes growth versus you know smelly <laughs> stuff that you don't want to walk in right. that to me is part of the problem right how do we not fall in love with the metrics we're thinking of today because they may have to change so we always have to be mindful of what we're metricing, right? Mm -hmm. And then how do we metric those things in a way that allows us? I, I say we got to go slow to go fast. It takes time to build that tooling, to build that infrastructure. And if we keep reinvesting in that in multiple places and not migrating to an enterprise environment to take advantage of it, we add to risk, in my opinion, Nick. So I think the continuous monitoring is also part of us having that environment we know well enough that we understand how to monitor it well enough and then we can monitor different things as we learn but if we just keep reinventing that infrastructure that environment we're almost doing ourselves a disservice so i think continuous monitoring also goes with having a solid infrastructure and team that understands it in an expert system way if that made sense Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm recording this week about 45 video segments for this uh, Learn with Nick uh, training curriculum. And I've been um, kind of putting together a list of things that people should understand. We talk about post-mortems post um, uh, and, and blameless uh, post-mortems. So, so people have the ability to learn and not fear repercussion when it comes to their jobs. I argue that some of the reason as to why... Uh, throughout the, the 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 leadership reviewing uh, those powerpoints going to to the to the top up when t leadership um the reason why it keeps changing and getting uh, better and, and looking better is because people were educated to to um not embrace feather and so they are afraid of of telling the truth because now their career and their promotion might be at risk and so they they have to kind of change words and make it look a little bit nicer and you know spread a little bit of uh, uh, beautiful sprinkles on there so do you feel like we're failing at, at educating you know uh, managers and leaders as to how to just embrace feather 
I, I think we are. I don't think, well, let me, I say it this way. I don't think we've yet found the right way to communicate to the broadest of audiences. I, I think each, right. each, each community you talk to, right? If I'm giving a talk in, in any, any area that I talk, if I go to a, a place that it's in the farmlands, I'm not going to talk about, you know, city streets and traffic. I'm going to talk about cows right. and chickens or whatever. I, I, that's an art. I, I don't know that we have really evolved to the ability yet mature wise to communicate. So for example, when I go out and talk to the operational world, I don't talk about the the standard things I talk about in the Pentagon, my, my, my ATO scorecards, right? I talk about the operational risk, the impact to the fact that they own a bit of that risk but there's an enterprise risk as well we have to educate them on because the RMF concept is tiered. And I don't think we do a good enough job of describing that. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, so the other piece that you mentioned that's also very interesting because I'm also doing a, an entire 20 minute segment on, on change management, right? You talked about uh, the importance of uh, making sure that people are understanding and tracking and giving you uh, the proper uh, visibility of, of change management. And of course, we want to stay away from the the, the uh, change management bolts that used to take you know uh, two months to make any decision. But at the same time, right, you can also just make decisions and pretend it wasn't important. So some of the stuff we implemented in, in platform one was uh, you know multiple set of eyes uh, for approval of change and based on the criticality of the change and the type of change, you need the two, three, four set of eyes to approve something like that. Um, is that the kind of model that you think about when you want to uh, be able to have a better understanding of, of change management? I do. I, I think there's two aspects to it, right? I think that if I empower and enable the ecosystem to work at speed, then I'm doing less in the approval as an AO in the front end than I am in the back end. So if I push things down, if I have a stable infrastructure, stable infrastructure, I understand it then I can manage with security impact analyses and I can have those being done relatively quickly at the lowest possible level and have triggers that require when it has to be escalated so that if you right. want to change out, you know, version Windows 10 to version 11, you just do it, right? If you want to change out one tool to another, do a security impact analysis. And if we bake that into the system, the vendors are going to provide that to you, my theory, up front because they're going to want you to use their product. So if we can get that ecosystem working that way and we're meeting on a regular basis, so I have a 90-day look ahead for all my programs, this is where they're going. And for the programs that come to me and say, I can't give you a 90-day look ahead, even if it's not 100%, aren't mature enough, in my opinion, to be operating right. in this environment. You gotta kind of know where you're going and what your plans are. This isn't a wake up in the morning, drive by the Joey Bag of Donuts IT store, pick up some software, and say, "I want to put this in my factory." That's right. reckless. That's not right. what we're talking about with DevSecOps. But if we can have a plan, and they can work to that plan, and we can push it down to the lowest level and inspect later, I think that gets to what you're, what we're talking about. Managing change doesn't need to take long. It just needs to have the right understanding and visibility so that we can assess things even after the fact. 
Yeah, and yeah, you have a good point when you mentioned, you know, the uh, the importance of of having a plan. I mean, it's you know, people think agile is just winging stuff all the time and and hoping for the best. There's there's a balance, right, between okay, you know, you're gonna learn and have two week sprints and and uh, try different features on your application versus hey, I'm gonna start changing uh, my pipeline and my scanning and my tools in my pipeline and just play with stuff in my on my factory side versus the app being built on top. And I think there's definitely a need of, I mean, adding more tools to be more secure is one thing, but removing one or replacing one by another is drastically impacting the pipeline potential ability to catch something malicious. That's a whole different story than it's a whole different risk. I, I think it is. I think it's two parts to it. If I have a stable pipeline, it's always evolving. It, it's a never static thing. But then again, right, we never have perfect money and perfect time and perfect everything. So I can, and I do see this, Nick, today, we can unconsciously build in biases into our products that require certain tools. So today, we live in a world where, based, for the most part, most apps that come off of one pipeline can't ubiquitously move to another pipeline environment, right? We haven't yet, in my opinion, evolved to that, that state. And then I think the other part of it is, right, just because we can, right, we have users out there who operate very complex machines in, 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 in high tolerance environments. You, you can't push certain changes every other day to, a, to somebody, right. right? If you're gonna push a change that requires a pilot to re-understand or re-qualify how to fly the airplane, that's probably <laughs> that's not something problem. you can push every 37 seconds, right? Yeah but you can certainly push other things. So I think understanding what you can and can't push is a, again, a maturity we're not yet there at. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So let's see, uh, there's a, a lot of people ask me the question. So I, so I put it on the, on the slide here. Uh, you know, I've, I've been fighting and, and, and discussing open source since I joined DOD and even DHS. Um, some people are, are very much still anti-open source, despite the fact that we have better visibility, allegedly, you know, because uh, we need support and there's not always uh, the right team to provide such support. Some are just afraid of the actual cyber risk because China or Russia could have, you know, developers in the open source projects and inject malicious code, which is which is a fair risk. It's it's a thing, but at least we have the ability to see it versus a commercial company that gets breached like SolarWinds and now we just pay the price with zero ability to, to find out until they tell us, uh, you know, eight months too late uh, after finding out by accident. Uh, so it's just interesting to think about kind of the pros and cons of open source and wanted to know a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think this is a really great question. I, I think it is part of the whole cultural challenge we have, right? I mean, when I grew up, we did things in a very tightly coupled, government-owned, government-driven, you know, we had all the software, all the hardware, all the data rights, everything was in our labs. And I was working in nuclear assurance software, so, you know, I hope the software I wrote never works because it's in guidance systems with nuclear weapons. It would be a very bad day to, to me to claim success because my software works. But I think today's a different world. And I think that, I agree with a lot of what Lauren said in the, her testimony, I think Open source can be more secure, but we have to be thoughtful in how we implement it, right? If I have open source that I can inspect, that we have the technology today, 
that I can scan, that I can look at, that I can make sure there's no, you know, if I'm in binaries, I can do things with that to understand. I can then balance that against what is the risk of an adversary knowing that I took their software? Well, I can I can handle that risk in a different way. So I think open source isn't necessarily any more um, risky from my perspective, right? If you if you mean it this way, if you mean open source is stuff that has been debated and checked and prodded by lots of people versus maybe something that's proprietary and sole source to me that I don't see into, that I don't understand. I have no ability to trust that. Pass is a good example of something in SaaS that we have to work our thinking through because it doesn't work the same way. Not saying it's bad and, and more so. I actually think it's a great conversation because I think open source can be more secure but there are some things we have to make sure we're doing in order to enable that, if that sort of made sense. Yeah, the way I think about it, I guess, is, you know, first you need to pick the right projects, right? So there are so many open source projects. And if you pick the right community maintained by the right uh, companies and not just relying on maybe on one person, that's probably a pretty good thing. Of course, people will say, well, if you pick a pretty large open source projects like Cubase, it's also the the most targeted projects, which is true, but then you have a lot of eyes on it. So more likely to find mistakes and more likely also that the mistakes will be fixed uh, pretty rapidly, which also is critical. Uh, but then people also forget that if you go on the other side of the commercial software, then you're going to find that, uh, well, first, uh, they use probably 60 to 70% open source in their software, except you don't really know what they use. So there is plenty of open source in commercial uh, software, often with... Uh, a very poor hygiene in terms of updating the bits of these the dependencies, which uh, often leads to uh, breaches uh, with uh, stale uh, dependencies. You know, we've seen it with Atlassian with eight to 12 years old dependencies and 1400 CVEs. And we see the price we have to pay now that we had to shut down uh, the A2E uh, because of that breach. So, so there's a lot of things that have impact. It is still a commercial company um and and so you have less visibility of course on the code itself that's uh ip from that commercial company and, and so there's these pros and cons on both sides i would argue uh when it comes to security um the fact that you're more transparent that you can see the source code in open source software de facto makes it so that of course if, if the software is terrible malicious actors are going to find a lot of ways to get in but it's less likely to be terrible because if it's a big project, that means more eyes on code, more ability to fix stuff, better security, and we can certainly improve. And I think the CNCF and the Linux Foundation has been doing a pretty good job at picking uh, some of the most critical open source projects and self-funding uh, cyber engagements, not just pen testing, but also uh, uh, investment in, in securing and scanning the, the software itself. So that's uh, all pretty good progress. Yeah, I think the other thing that open source helps us get at, Nick, the cultural changes, we, we tend to be punitive, right? We, mm -hmm. we tend to say, oops, you got a vulnerability, you're bad, instead of how do I celebrate vulnerabilities? How do I, you know, as an AO, I used to give out awards to programs. I know that's <laughs> counter to what an AO should do, but how do I celebrate that program is finding their, their, their risk areas? How do we celebrate that and not treat it as punitive? That's the only way we're going to get better. Yeah, the most important, I guess, for me um, has always been, um, you know, the the ability to 
to learn and and then don't make the same mistake again because what 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 frustrates me is all these teams that say oh you know we're so agile and you know we're, we're a great software factory uh spending quite a bit of taxpayer money in the process by the way way more than you would on the commercial side and then all to say well you know we, we've been we made a few mistakes and and which you know we learned and then they make the same mistake again. And that is, that is where you lose me, right? You're not supposed to keep making the same mistakes. Absolutely. You know, I, I used to say, if I can, if I can learn from your mistake and not repeat it, I'm doing a lot better than I, than I was before. Right. And, and the opposite is true. If you're not learning and you keep making the same mistakes, maybe you're not, you're not in the right engagement. So, so looking at, uh, you know, what, what keeps you up at night? I got a lot of people asking that question. Obviously, I had to ask you because everybody kind of has the same concern. I know what keeps me up at night. What about you? I think what keeps me up at night, honestly, for, for the most part is what am I missing, right? Not a specific risk because I think we can put enough TTPs in place. But I, I, I look at, our, I, I'll say it this way, right? We our arrogance, right? Our belief that we can do it better and smarter than anybody else. We don't talk to people and communicate and collaborate as much as we should. And that leads to seams. That leads to things I don't understand. I think part of that, from my perspective, is I, I do believe we have an a ecosystem that doesn't work in the time we are and where we want to go. We have too many seams. We have too many people in the in the kitchen trying to make the chili. We have too many people who think they can say no. All of that keeps me up at night because I think it creates an opportunity for us not to see something because I'm chasing the wrong thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you're afraid of what you don't get to see or know because of, of either people making those PowerPoint slides look better than they are. Or just because of incompetence or uh, yeah. uh, you know, lack of awareness of, of, of those issues. And, and I think that the other part of that, Nick, that automation scares me because you can automate the bad faster. You can talk about AI and ML, and a lot of people don't really appreciate the difference there. I can train an AI to get to the wrong answer faster than I'm getting to the wrong answer today, but have I really addressed risk or have I just made it actually easier? So I think those things to me is, this is a complicated technical topic and being an authorizing official and I think that ecosystem needs to be more technically inclined and more technically focused as a career field maybe than we are today in the, oh, you have a rank so you can be an AO. I think that's the wrong approach. Yeah, so in fact, the next question that we got from the public was about, um, you know, how do you see how do you see the boundaries of AOs overlapping or, or not being kind of divided, right? Do, do you see an issue with how we even think about AOs uh, boundaries nowadays? I, I think we're evolving, and I know Ms. K is, is working on it as well. We actually do collectively see that the way we structured 10, 15 years ago made sense 10 or 15 years ago, and it still makes sense to a lot of contexts, meaning an AO who understands the thing that they're assessing in the environment is a better equipped AO. 
but I think we've divided up into, I think there's 27, right? Maybe I'm seven mm -hmm. of those while others have one, but there's, there's just so many seams. There's so many. And, and I think that is contributing. We created the cloud and DevSecOps boundary, for example, as an experiment to say, could we look at this differently? Could we look at this from a, a weapon system or a boundary, you know, an area kind of thing? And I think that's more where we need to go, not less. And I do know we're talking about that at the DAF level and others. And how would we and what would that structure look like as we evolve? Yeah, and some of the the PEO's uh, segmentation is already wrong, so that com that compounds the problem when it comes to accreditation, uh, because we cut things in very weird buckets, right? PEO Digital, for example, uh, does not have cloud cloud one and platform one, which you know doesn't make a lot of sense. So we we cut things between C three INN and and PEO Digital, for example, uh, pretty weirdly, and then you have the same compounded between. F-35, you know, uh, F-22 and, and the jets and, and the bombers and when when a lot of it could be shared. And, and so it's, it's just divided in, in very small silos, often not enabling that reuse of code and, and capabilities, right? Yeah, I think one of the challenges in any large organization, whether my commercial company before or this, is we want the desire to use efficiency and enterprise tools. We gain a lot of value. We gain security, we gain efficiency, we gain all of those things. But we don't reward people that way, right? We, we were marked by Congress to spend money in certain ways, in certain environments, right? I, I don't know of any anybody that's ever got promoted by saying I reduced my staff and my team and I used somebody else's work, right? So, so it is a larger challenge but I do think that point you're making comes back to our inability to get to a place where we really invest in, sustain, and use those enterprise tools, coupled with our ability that everybody thinks, well, I can do it better than, than those people, and I'm going to start from scratch, really adds to the risk area we're talking about. And that does add to keep me up at night because I don't see us... Because of my perch, I see across a lot of different things. And I see a lot of dollars being spent and a lot of talent being spent duplicating, replicating, and not you know collaborating and reusing. And I don't know how we, we address that very well at, at such a large enterprise. Yeah, it's kind of the problem with the massive uh, behemoth that is DoD, right? So um, a couple of people were asking um, your, your opinion on, on EMAS. So I'll tell you that I'm tool agnostic, right? I, I think whether there is a need, right? So I, I start off this conversation always by telling people I'm an OPM survivor. So I have an immediate bias of putting all of my critical stuff in one place. As a cyber professional, that's probably not the smartest thing I've ever heard of. But I recognize we have a need for some sort of way to track things. I think EMAS has gotten a bad name for good reasons and bad reasons. For good reasons, because we've mixed the repository part, like I put my authorizations in EMAS when it has an account, right? Just the authorization, not the vulnerabilities, not the poems, not all of those things. And, but I don't use the workflow, right? So there is two parts to the tool. One is the tool itself, which isn't necessarily bad, and you want to have enterprise visibility Right. So mm -hmm. log4j happens or the next thing, 
it would be yeah. good at the enterprise level to be able to know where are my risks in that quickly if I had the ability to do that. But I think we've misused the tool, being honest about it, to enforce things in the wrong way. And that whether it's Xacto, whether it's Emacs, or some other tool, I think that's our challenge. If we could, so I asked this earlier when I was being presented uh, about a year ago, an analysis on an alternative of tools to Emacs. I asked the briefer what were requirements that you had for the objectives and the outcomes of the tool. They didn't have any. So I didn't mm. understand the market research, Nick, right? I couldn't get my arms around. It's not the tools a problem. We don't know what we want to do with it. That's my opinion. Interesting, yeah, no doubt. Um, all right, so I have one more question, then uh, we're going to have a lot of questions from the public more. Um, all right, so what's next for you? So, so at the, my, my current HQE appointment uh, expires on 16 October. Um, as of today, I don't necessarily have a path forward. Uh, there's a lot of conversations going on. Um, I desire to want to continue doing what I'm doing, but it, you know the machine is big and large and takes time. So, so my honest answer is I don't have a path forward at the moment. So that for people that don't realize how bad this uh, this piece of information is, this is what actually keeps me up at night. It's when we lose uh, people like Danny, who is literally the only AO that I know that's capable of having these kind of discussions and understand the Compute ATO process and uh, the mindset of DevSecOps and that we hear that uh, his appointment is ending in a couple of months and that he has yet to hear uh, a path to uh, to continuing to engage and help uh, the department to uh, to accredit their systems. That's uh, that's probably what keeps, keeps me up at night. So, uh, you know hopefully people watching the show will uh will wake up before before you're gone and i've i've already emailed everybody but the queen of england so i can't do much more than that all the way to secaf and others so um that's what it is uh all right so let's take questions from from our dear public here uh, i'm gonna read the question to you okay um how do we make cybersecurity a higher program priority i keep hearing what fighter needs to come first so I, I think that the the way that I think about that answer is not to pit warfighter versus security. And what I have found is when I go talk to the warfighters and I can actually communicate in ways they understand, uh, I can I, I make the discussion with them that they are taking undocumented risks today that they don't want to take without at least knowing it. So if I can get the warfighter to appreciate, right, you don't just go down the street and buy ammunition from Joey Bag of Donuts and put in your gun and go to war. You that's not a smart warfighter. So, but I got to communicate differently, right? It, I love it when I go out to Usafi last week, I met with, you know, about 50 airmen and we get in a room, we talk about it. I can really listen to what their struggles and thoughts are. And, and I don't know of any other AO, never mind a lot of folks in the Pentagon that actually go do that, right? That go out and talk and communicate and learn to understand what their life is like and how do I help them understand that cyber is not something different. It's an integrated part of survivability. It, it's key in today's world. So I think we need to communicate differently. We need to have better communications and engagement and not talk about 
things, quite frankly, as as an AO, I tell this, I say this all the time. We have don't have the best reputation, right? We have the no because I said card. We don't have the yes if card. We have the takes too long card. We we haven't taken the opportunity to go talk and communicate to help people understand. That's part of culture change. Yeah, no doubt. It's 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 actually interesting because, you know, when you look at cybersecurity and the the confidentiality, integrity, and availability, uh, confidentiality, I think some people care and some people don't. Although you know, with upsec and a lot of people love to remind me about upsec all the time. Uh, I think that's uh, that's people, you know, pay attention to it. But but integrity and 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 availability, I think that would resonate with what fighter needs because if the system is down. And you can even use it. I guess I'm not sure the wall fighter will be uh, very pleased, right? So that's uh, that's obviously important. So let's look at some of the other questions we got here. Um, there's so many of them. Uh, all right, so let's pick this one. All right. Uh, so Brian was asking, how do we move past uh, inspect for security after development? Meaning, uh, you know people often uh, wait that we are ready to deploy to start thinking about cyber. So I, again, to me, the, the, it's a whole ecosystem problem, right? And I, and I think um, the communications part of this is, is what I think is key. Leadership is talking about it more. I, I just spent a year working with the Air Force Audit Agency, right? This is a partnership. <clears throat> this isn't an adversarial relationship. <coughs> Excuse me. We went out and metric the programs that I had ATOs under that were working under, and they came back and said, "Are they doing the things I wanted to do?" I think we need to change. You do get what you inspect. I think we need to change how we're inspecting things. Why is there a CCRI checklist that the AOs didn't approve? Why are there all these checklists and scorecards that AOs didn't get a, a say in? If I am the assessor, and you can judge whether or not I should be or not, but if I am the person who's communicating the cyber risk, shouldn't those things be checking on the things that I say need to be checked on, right? And can I tie them into the DevSecOps criteria and gates that we used to talk about, Nick, right? How do we get what we really want to inspect instead of some tertiary or third party building a checklist and checking for something? Because that is... To me, that's part of the reason. I spent time in a program office. I spent time as a chief engineer. I had a thousand things beyond the money and funding I had to do, and my user wanted capability. So how would I manage that, right? I had 13 IPD, cyber security at the time. IA was just one. Yeah, that's kind of mind-boggling. All right, so let's take a look at another question. Um, what will the revamp of uh, DODI 85101 look like? Will DODCA look to leverage the current modernized ATO authorization past the ATO processes? Uh, looks like they will be baking the CCIs into the 800-53, uh, which is good, I think. Or, uh, initially, uh, the DOD over-engineered RMF. Uh, and I guess, uh, are we able to still evolve the legacy RMF mechanism like EMAS? not likely to be replaced. So, so I, I think that, so it's interesting. I've been having a long conversation with DOD CIO on both these topics and the other service systems and DISA. And, and I think that my 
description of what I'm doing as an authorizing official is fully compliant with and meets all requirements of 8510 and, and the RMF. And I've had that conversation with DOD CIO to the point I think they agree with me. And I think there is nothing in the the current version that's in legal sufficiency review that I've gone through that changes that. I also believe that we're going to be getting a clarification um, memo on top of that. And, and, and Mr. McCowan has announced this previously publicly, so I'm not speaking out of turn, where we're going to, they're going to stress this is about risk management. This is about intent. This is about making sure we understand the context and operational setting. Yes, you can go look at the 7,000 pages of policy and guidance, but don't focus on line three, sentence two, paragraph one, right? Focus on the intent, the thinking part. So I, I'm excited actually to see this come out with all the associated tools that are just there as tools, right? They're not meant to be a set of compliance. I got to read every word and every paragraph to understand everything 100%. They're meant to be guidance. I think that's a philosophical shift we need. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Sometimes we're putting our own impediments in. I see these as tools that allow us to do smart things. And I have not seen a, a case yet where the DOD CIO or others, when they ask me and I've walked through what I'm doing and why, that they disagreed, if that helps with the question. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right. Let's see. Gary had uh, a question also about what do you think is the thing that uh, the community could do or recognize to, to improve everything we talked about today? I, I would offer, I think, as a community, two things. We need to evangelize good behavior and stop poking at bad behavior, right? Mm -hmm. We are fighting ourselves. We're like, a, I, I, you know, my heritage, I'll say a large Jewish family. When we're not being attacked, we tend to fight each other. <laughs> right, and we haven't had a cyber attack, really a big one yet, to fight others. But, but I think that <clears throat> the more we can start to coalesce together and not worry so much about you put brown socks on versus orange socks, right? And focus on do I have socks on, right? And and know enough to know that you're allergic to wool, so wool socks for you aren't going to work. I, I think we don't take time to think through. You know, I learned a lesson early in life, Nick, when I worked in my one of my grandfather's shops here in the tool dye company is there are left-handed people and right-handed people in the world. And if I make the efficiency of the pipeline such that only right-handed people can work in it very well, I don't help. So right. how do we get to our unconscious bias and get it on the table? And then how do we reward behavior and start to celebrate the behavior you want to see instead of always tearing down the behavior we don't want to see? Good point. All right. Let's see. Michael had a question about EMAS. Uh, should EMAS feed the AO dashboard or should the dashboard be a separate solution for the AO AODR awareness? So I think, again, as a tool, you can use EMAS to feed dashboards. It actually allows you to create them like any other kind of tool would exactly at EMAS. The challenge I face there 
is you have to then define what do you want to see? What's the underlying data I want to see to drive that view? And is the, all of that inside of EMAS? And if it is, great. If it isn't, has somebody thought through, right? Do I want every piece of hardware inventory across the entire Air Force in one tool? And if I do, how do I keep it updated? How much is that costing me? Why is that necessary? Is it driving an answer that I want to see? So I think the way I answer that question is I'm agnostic to the tool. I think mm -hmm. we have to talk through what do we want to see and why, and then how do I build the underlying apparatus? Because we're starting at the wrong end. We're talking about a tool. We're not yet defining this is what I want to see. And unless I define what I want to see, I don't know how to build the environment underneath that. It's similar, Nick, to how we started off this journey together where you, you had an idea and you had a culture and then you had a tech reference architecture that we built to. We, right. we don't have that yet for these tools. And I think we need to start there. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I believe uh, that uh, the Air Force actually mandates the use of EMAS. So that's uh, also probably a problem. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, anyway. So that's a that's um, a debatable point, actually. That's actually go, not go what ahead. the Air Force. That's actually not what the Air Force policy says. But but that's neither. Oh, no, that's either. interesting. That's interesting because I guess I had talked to uh, um, the former, I guess, Air Force CISO, and she had that memo that uh, I think I I non-concur, but I thought it was signed anyways. But uh, saying that EMAS was a required uh, a product, I guess maybe a. Uh, Maybe that didn't get signed. I don't know. No, there's a set. There's a line in there with a a comma, and the rest of there's another part of that sentence, right? So that's. I, oh, so maybe I'm they added a sentence. Maker. I missed. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll take but it. I'll take it. Whether we have one tool or not, to me, again, I can make EMAS work. I can make Exacto work. I can make any tool work. Right. Right. If we want to use a tool to get the wrong answer faster, that's fine. But what I don't get asked is I've been asking, right? EMAS has a three-page list of requirements needed to do all the things we want that aren't funded. Why don't we talk about that as opposed to let's just everybody put everything in EMAS because you're not going to get what you desire anyways. So I, I, right. I don't, again, what's the objective? Yeah. I also think there is a DOD memo somewhere that does require EMAS as a DOD thing, but I don't know, maybe... Who knows? There's so, so many memos that contradict contradict themselves well, anyways. That's why I love policy arguments, because I can always find a line that's that contradict you can view another <laughs> way. And my discussion with DOD CIO and, and the other CISOs, right, from other services, we brought this up and we actually looked at what 8510 says. It says you have to use an enterprise tool, you know, like EMAS or some other. It gives mm -hmm. the services the choice to pick the tool. And so we we've we've ingested that as saying you have to use it you have to use it well maybe that's the right answer i don't know i just i think we've got group think going on makes sense all right so there's a couple of uh, other questions one is kind of uh uh directed at me i guess i don't know i'm not sure but um i'll, I'll ask you the question first so when you look at that that vision we have right what do you think is your biggest hurdle <laughs> My, my, my biggest hurdle, I think, is, to be quite honest about it, we have not built 
the ecosystem to educate and care for our airmen, right? If we want people working in this environment, which again, I say is an expert system, we haven't built the system, the apparatus that supports that. I think that I can educate you, Nick, and I can educate three program managers and spend a year, then they get assignments to go somewhere else, I gotta start over again. We haven't really built the ecosystem to sustain the knowledge transfer long-term. That's really what I think is a key area. So it's, it's both the, the learning, right? The, the training and the uh, information sharing and, and transition, right? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, all right. So let's see what else we got here. So Jonathan was asking what repository or website is a good resource uh, for learning about uh, countries ATO and EMAS? Um, well, I guess I have some answers, but I don't know if you want to if you want to answer that. So I'll offer you from a continuous ATO perspective, the chief software officer, Nick, I'll let you, you know, put out, <laughs> has a good repository. From my view as an authorizing official, we've created our own onboarding pro program that I use to train my team. And that's all up on the RMF knowledge service. And I can get to the link to where that is, is videos, is templates, is this training sessions, is all kinds of things. I, I stole the idea from Nick because I think the, the CSO site is the best example of what I could say is an investment into allowing us to train people. Yeah, although the CSO website has been stale for the last uh, eight months or nine months, so that's uh, what it is. But uh, yeah, if you go to the software that they have that mail website under the section DSOP documents, you're going to find not only videos about continuous ATO and the process, but we have recordings. Uh, with uh, the team that created the uh, the documentation for the country's ATO and, and architectural documents and, and stuff. We don't really talk about EMAS, so I don't know where you would go. I think the DISA website um, has information about EMAS there, so that's probably where you would want to go. Um, there's other platforms too, of course. Uh, and then he talks about Exacta. There's also the Ignite uh, Assurance platform and things like that, so you can check that out as well. And then there's... Uh, uh, on the DODCA website here, you're going to find uh, on the DODCA.defense.gov slash libraries, you can see a lot of the policies memo guides, uh, including a lot of the DevSecOps publications that have been shared on that website as well. So you're going to find both of that uh, there. So uh, let's see. Um, so a lot of people were asking, um, you know, you, you have this, uh, I guess, PowerPoint you send to programs and they were asking, can you describe a little bit of, you know, the process and your mindset when it comes to uh, the new program comes to you tomorrow and says, Hey, I want to have that, that going to ATO. What does the process look like and, and what kind of time frame do you see? I, of course, assuming they're not, they're good and, and they're not 20 years behind, <laughs> but, but what, what, what do you look at when you, uh, when you start a new engagement with a new program? So the first thing I tell programs is I commit extortion, right? But the second thing I tell them is they own the ability to have the agility. If they take this seriously, they own the ability. Cyber's commander's business. This is, this is not bring me a bunch of paper. So I start off with what I consider the answers to the test, right? I do have a larger ecosystem. I actually sit down. We write an MOU. We sign, they're going to pay me money. So I actually sign. This is what you need to do. They sign up. There's no bring me a rock. They know exactly what they need to do. 
I put him through the onboarding with my team. We assign somebody, and that gets us the ability to have the the answers, which I say I can do within six weeks or less on any program, right? You bring me bad data, that's a bunch of garbage. You're going to get a high-risk DATO. But if you bring me good data with all the right apparatus you need to, you're going to get a fast, responsive time for me. And we can do things faster than that, right? I won't promise everybody what I promise a vice chief, which is an hour, but, but you know, there's some range in there <laughs> between, between what reality is. So I start off with what I call my determination briefing, which to me is really the answers to the test. That is the executive summary, right? And if you can't summarize something well enough, you don't really understand it, that you should present to me when you want me to make a determination. And it really mm. is very simple. It walks through the what is it you want me to assess? How does it work? Where do the parts come from? What data are you using? How does it come in? How does it being protected? Where does it go out to? In a nutshell, if you don't know those things within a week on anything you want me to assess, I don't own the ability for agility anymore. You do, right? If you don't really understand what it is you want me to assess, I can't yeah. help you as an AO. So. What I'm teaching the programs is if you can do all this stuff and, and I want to educate people as far wide as possible so it comes in on day one from industry, right, with all that information. Now, all the things we do under the waterline, the scans, the, the, the compliance stage or, or whatever variation there is of that, the understanding what uh, some things we can't use, right, there, there are things we have to go through and do and software SF checks. That all feeds into that executive summary. But to me, that is starts the conversation. And I can walk down with a program. And I'll be honest, I use it for two reasons. To help a program understand. And a PM should want the same exact information. A PEO should want the same information. Without that, I, I, I offer to you that you can't own cost schedule performance if you don't know what the heck it is you're building or creating. Because sure, schedule looks business. the same. <laughs> right? So, so if... If they understand that, we work together, again, with celebrating what we are finding in a way that allows that conversation, that continued engagement, that ability for me to understand and understand what they're saying and how they're saying it. So that's why we developed it. It's different now than it was three years ago. It's been over 200 applications of real programs. So it's built by programs, with programs, program managers, chief engineers, with other authorizing officials. It's not the perfect answer for everybody. It's a template. It's not a compliance document, but it walks through that. How could I explain to a, a warfighter, a four-star, three-star, a, a CIO or somebody else? I can use that briefing to sit down and say, yeah, they got an ATO, but here's what they are. Here's how they work. Here's what they connect to. Here's why the risk is over here. Here's why it's okay they have Windows 7 because it's in a single board computer, not connected to anything over here in the corner that never touches the outside world. It's not a risk from a cyber perspective. So that helps me with that communication, if that made sense. Yeah, no doubt. That's great. So we're out of time. But uh, first, I always leave the last words to the guests. So it's going to be your closing arguments, but I wanted to uh, remind a few things. Uh, one, uh, next Tuesday, uh, 1 p.m., we're going to get a, a great uh, two guests uh, from uh, a great AIML uh, company, and we're going to announce it in a, in a minute with David Gervin and John Kramer uh, from Torch AI to discuss AIML capabilities and what it takes to uh, successfully implement 
AI in large organizations and kind of the accelerators, you know, the things to avoid, um, what they've t seen, the DoD do, what can we do better, you know, things like that. It's going to be pretty interesting if you're um, trying to get a better grasp of, of AI ML. That's going to be a great session next week. So join us uh, next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Wanted to remind one last time that uh, the thing that keeps me up at night no days is the fact that Danny uh, is going to not have uh, an ability to remain in the Air Force despite uh, willing to stay, which which is even more uh, frustrating for me. Um, and so if, if uh, everyone wants to blast uh, uh, Secretary Kendall's and uh, Mr. Hunter and others' emails to say that's, that's probably not a good idea, particularly if uh, you're part of the program's offices that Danny has been supporting, I think it's going to be a, a massive impact, uh, negative impact, of course, uh, if Danny is not here in the Air Force and Space Force in a couple of months. So uh, I would recommend not waiting any longer and uh, even putting your career on the line to to send the emails. I've already done so, and I've already talked to, to Secretary uh, Kendall about it and um, uh, multiple times now. So I've done what I could. Uh, so do that uh, for us, and uh, let's make sure uh, we have a fighting chance at uh, winning against China uh, 20 years from now, thanks to the work that uh, our DevSecOps teams and, and uh, Danny has been doing for the last uh, many years. Danny, over to you for the, the final words. So I'd offer just two thoughts quickly, Nick. Right, One, I really look for feedback. What we're doing today is maybe not good enough, but it's the best practice we have. So as I want to continue to learn and continue to get better at this, so I'm open to any positive, negative, or sideways feedback on how we can do better from understanding real risk. And I appreciate the time, everybody's participation, and I'm opening to answer any questions following up this with, with Nick, even if it's via email back and forth. So thank you, Nick. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Stay safe. We'll see you uh, next Tuesday, 1 p.m. And thanks so much for everything you're doing to keep all nations safe. See you next week. Bye-bye.